Well, as I mentioned in the prayer, we're studying the rich young ruler today. This is actually part two. So if you were with us last week, we started in Mark chapter 10. We took verses 17 through 22. I chopped this moment in half. Rather than have one really long sermon, I thought it would be beneficial to slow down and maybe have two shorter sermons today because there's so much here. There's a, a wealth of knowledge in the rich young ruler, pun intended. But in the rich young ruler, normally when it's, when it's preached, when it's studied, uh, Christians tend to focus on how we view money, how we look at our material possessions, and, and then it reevaluate how much we value them and, and, and things like that. And that's, that's respectable, that's reasonable, but that's not the primary lesson that's being taught in this moment with the rich young ruler. That's a secondary truth that's being taught, and it's a, it's a distant second place. The primary lesson that we're to walk away with when we study about the rich young ruler is how are people saved? How how are you saved? How is it that you will one day inherit eternal life? How is it that you are among the people who are in the kingdom of God? That's what the lesson of the rich young ruler is ultimately teaching us. Let me remind you about the context, what was taught immediately before this moment with the rich young ruler. Jesus had his disciples, and, and, and he has this object lesson with a child. And here's what he says to them. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Here's how he says it in the book of Matthew, in the parallel passage. He says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus wasn't teaching us to be more cute and cuddly. He wasn't teaching us to be more naive or silly, like children often are. That's why we love them. He's teaching us to be helpless, helplessly dependent upon grace, just like a child is helplessly dependent upon their mother and their father. We're to come to God like children. That's who Christians are, according to the Bible. We are helplessly dependent upon his grace and mercy. We don't come before God and enter into the kingdom of God and, and you know, uh, gain this eternal inheritance based on our credentials. We don't turn in a resume of good deeds. We don't, we don't reflect on our life at any point. We come to God asking for grace and mercy, and we get that through his son, Jesus. That's how Christians are who they are. They are helplessly dependent upon God. And if you're tempted to think otherwise, if you're tempted to be one of those people who says, yeah, but I got to do this and I got to bring this to the table or I got to bring that to the table in order to get into the kingdom of God. If you're tempted to think that way, the story of the rich young ruler is a warning to you. Do not think that way. But if you, if you insist, if you insist, here's this moment with the rich young ruler. Consider this. The rich young ruler was rich. He was young. He's a ruler. He has authority. He's everything we want to be. He has his life together more than, than most anybody. It, we, we just can't quite get those three things to, to line up, can we? He's, he's rich, young, and he's, he has authority. It's, it's incredible. And, and so he's not used to depending on anyone in life. He comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, just tell me what I got to do. Jesus is like, oh, you want to do it? Here's the law. 
If you want to do it, here's the law. Follow it perfectly. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then you can inherit the eternal, this eternal kingdom that I'm preaching about. Like when you boil down what the Bible teaches about salvation, here's what it says. You can obtain access to the kingdom of God in one of two ways. Be perfect, follow the law to a T, don't even, don't even, don't even miss or break the law with, by, by one, one bad action. If you're perfect, you can gain access, or you need to plead for mercy and grace. Those are the two ways you can inherit the kingdom of God. I'm just stealing that from the book of James. Here's how he says it. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And so when you're trying to see if you're good enough to be a part of the kingdom of God, don't make the mistake of comparing your life to, to those around you. If you do that, we'll rig that game. Remember we talked about that last week? If we're trying to evaluate our worth, if you just compare yourself to the lives of those around you, you can always find someone you deem to be a, a little behind you or, or way behind you to make yourself feel better, more worthy. But that's not what you're supposed to do. And the Bible teaches if you want to see how you're doing as far as living up to the law, compare yourself to God and then see how you're doing. Well, <laughs> wow, we're not going to be doing too well when we compare ourselves to perfection, are we? Right? To err as human. And that's what we are. But this rich young ruler, he was tempted to think that way, much like we're tempted to think that way in comparing our lives to everybody else and never compare our lives to God. He, and he, had, he, had, he was self-deceived. He was self-ignorant. He had fooled himself into thinking that he was worthy based on what he has done in his life. But Jesus saw straight through it. See, when you and I think that way and we think we're worthy, we can even convince the people around us that we're worthy, but we can never convince God. He can see right through any fraudulent behavior that we exhibit in our lives, and he sees straight through to our heart. He sees straight through to what's going inside your brain, what's going on inside your life. Nothing is hidden from him. He knows what's going on in the depths of the sea that we haven't even discovered yet. He especially knows what's going on in your life. We can't hide anything from him. And that's what he did to this man. Jesus, like only Jesus can, he just looked right into this guy's heart and he saw exactly what was seated on the throne there. It wasn't God. It was money. And so he exposed his fraudulent devotion to God when he says this. This is in verse 21, a little review. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And in that love, here's what he said. You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And we remember his response, don't we? He was disheartened. Only that word in the Greek is more than just slumping your shoulders. There's a shock factor to it. He like lost his breath. He gasped. That's the one thing I can't do. I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that, right? Just like the meatloaf song, I won't, I can't do that. I can't do that. And he went away sorrowful. He, he, he was just shocked. He was appalled. He, I, 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 I don't know what to say. And he just starts to walk away into the horizon. But remember, there's an audience there. The disciples are there. There's some other people listening to Jesus teach and, and witnessing this moment. And so Jesus uses the rich young ruler now as another object lesson. Consider this man. Consider this man. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 23, chapter 10 of Mark. It says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, 
how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Ooh. See, the, the rich young ruler was shocked as he walked away, but now everybody's shocked. What did Jesus just say? How difficult it will be for, for those with wealth to be a part of the kingdom of God? How? How is he saying this? It's, it's shocking to our ears when we read that verse. It's like, oh no. Why is he saying that? Just, just like today, there existed this belief that things tend to always come easier to those who are wealthy, right? And that's a general truth. Uh, you know, you think about when it, when it comes to wealthy people, they, they uh, tend to have better access to education because of their money. They tend to have better access to health care. They tend to have better access to all sorts of basic resources because they have the money to obtain those things that other people don't have. And so there, there begins to develop this belief in our society today and in that day, it's the same thing, that everything just comes easier to those who have wealth. And so salvation wouldn't be any different. Salvation wouldn't be any different. But then here comes Jesus saying, uh, no, things may be easier for them in a lot of areas of life, but when it comes to salvation, it's especially difficult. It's especially difficult for those to obtain who are wealthy. Why would he say that? We start, you and I, this is, this is how we reason through things. When we try to figure that out, we start to think about the psychology behind it all. Why would it be more difficult for a wealthy person to trust in the Lord than for a poor person to trust in the Lord? Well, we say things like, well, you know, that makes sense, you know, because uh, wealthy people are, are more inclined to live with a false sense of security because they lack desperation. You go to a part of the world where people are just desperate for everything, it's easy for them to lean upon the Lord or to plead with the Lord for things. But people who are wealthy, they, they develop this false sense of security when it comes to salvation. Because they don't, they don't lean on anybody. They're self-sufficient. And we aspire to be that, don't we? So it makes sense that it would be more difficult for them to trust in the Lord. And we say things like, well, you know, those people, they, they never have to depend on anybody else. They're not used to feeling in need, so they're not going to depend on anyone, even God. And I, I could be mean here. I could even take it a step further and make another generalization that when, you know, wealthy people, they're more prone to being prideful, they're more prone to uh, be selfish, they're, they're, they're more prone to be convinced of their own success. If I was really being mean, I, it's a generalization that pretty much pans out, but, but here's the thing. You and I in here, we're all among the wealthy. We are all wealthy here. I mean, think about it. That wealthy... Those who are wealthy and those who are not, this term, it's relative, right? It's a relative term. You know, I'm wealthy, well, compared to what? Well, if I compare myself to the rest of the world, we are all extravagantly wealthy. I think I saw a statistic, oh man, off the top of my head, I don't have it in my notes, but I saw a statistic that if you have like three spigots in the home that you live with clean water, you're among like the top, you know, you're wealthier than like 86% of the rest of the world. So, I mean, we, we are certainly in that category here. I mean, I, I just bet, I just bet that if the rest of the world, the, the vast majority of the rest of the world would trade us places in a heartbeat. Any one of us in here, they would trade us places in a heartbeat when they would examine our possessions and our lifestyle compared to theirs. I bet you if we compared ourselves to the rich young ruler in this moment and look at what he had and how he lived and what and what money he had, if we compared even his lifestyle to our lifestyle today, we would be 
extravagantly wealthy compared to that guy. And so we are in danger because we are among the wealthy in society. Because wealth can trick you into believing things that are not true. Let me give you an example. We tend to think this way. The more we have in our bank accounts, the larger our house is, the better the car that we drive, we tend to think, I am so, so blessed. And that's a good thing, right? That's a good way to, to think. And, you know, the, the more we have, the, the more blessed we are because we have so much, right? And so we have this sentiment that we are especially blessed because we have so much. But here's, here's where it can get tricky and where we can take that too far. A lot of times when we start to think that way, we begin to create this false dilemma or a false dichotomy. That if you are wealthy and have great possessions, you are blessed. But if you are poor and don't have much, you are cursed. We start to think, well, if I am healthy and life is good, I am blessed. But if I am unhealthy and I got a lot of problems, I am cursed. That's where, that's where we develop this false dichotomy and start to think about God incorrectly. Well, that notion was developed in that day just like it exi exists in our culture today. So Jews in that day, they started to think this way just like we do. And they would say, well, man, when it comes to salvation... The wealthy are a shoe-in, right? Because, like, man, when I compare my life to theirs, they're, when they go to the temple and offer a sacrifice, man, they can offer an entire cow. They give so much to the kingdom of God. When I go to the temple, I can barely afford this dove. My sacrifices are pathetic. They're pitiful compared to those who are wealthy. Those are, salvation comes easy to them because they have a lot of wealth. Salvation is going to be hard for me. That was, that was the sentiment. And then Jesus says something completely counter-cultural. He says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It would have been disoriented. He turned it all on its head. Jesus often does that. Watch how shocked people are after he just says, just taught that. And then he's going to double down on that same exact teaching. And they're going to be even more shocked. Pay attention to their response to Jesus as I continue to read in verse 24 through 26. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? See the sentiment there? I mean, they were amazed, and then they're astonished. They're like, well, if they can't get in, who's going to get in? It turned their whole thought process upside down. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That was actually a common expression. Jesus didn't just come up with that. That was a common expression that existed in that time. Typically, the animal would be an elephant. It's easier for an elephant to get through the eye of a needle uh, then, and then they would add whatever ex uh, the rest of that that they wanted the point that they were going to try to make. But Jesus swapped out the animals there because there was probably a camel within view of where they're standing, and not an elephant. It's easier for that camel over there to get through the eye of this sewing needle than it is for a rich person to get into heaven. Now, if we think about that, he just said it's impossible for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. We don't like that. Because we're wealthy. So over the years in Christian history, 
we have worked overtime to soften what Jesus was teaching there. We have worked overtime to, to soften that blow because it's so extreme. So here's what happened back in the 11th century. There was a, an archbishop named Theophilact. They had much cooler names back in the day. My name's Cody. It means pillow or cushion. Oh, I'm going to get in a pillow fight with you over theology. Back then, it was Theophilact. He probably carried a spear everywhere he went. Back then, he wanted to soften the blow, though, when it, when it came to what Jesus had said. And, and so he taught this. He said, well, actually, when you would examine the wall that surrounded Jerusalem, there were these gates. They were big. They would open the gate, and you could bring in your, your camels and all your produce and, and, and things that you were going to sell in the market. And, and, and then when those gates would close, nobody got in, except for there was a smaller gate that they called the needle. And it was just like a, a small door that a single person could walk through. You couldn't take your animals through there, but a person could walk through there. Unless, you know, you could teach your camel, if you got all the possessions off of it, and, it, and just, you know, stripped it down to where it was just the camel, and you got that camel to walk on its knees, it could scoot back and forth and shimmy through that eye of the needle. It's, it's really difficult but it can happen. And then Theophilact would use that teaching to say, see, you wealthy people need to give more. You need to give more, and then you can shimmy through and get into the kingdom of God just like that camel can. It's pretty much possible. Now, the problem with that illustration is that it's not true. That's the biggest problem with it. <laughs> there is zero evidence that there ever existed a smaller gate next to the bigger gate. And there's zero evidence that anything was called a needle that was describing a smaller access into, like, Jerusalem. Maybe something like that exi existed in the, in the 11th century, but it certainly didn't exist back in the time of Jerusalem and, and those walls and gates there. It's not true. There's zero support for that. Theophilact just wanted to soften the blow. So modern scholars, they, tip they typically avoid that, right? even though I think I've preached it like that before, if I'm being honest. But... Most of them try to avoid that. They, they get a little more scholarly. Well, I'm not going to use that excuse to soften this blow. I'm going to say this. Well, if you examine the Greek word for camel and the Greek word for rope, there is one letter that separates the two. And so what Jesus is most likely saying, that was a misspelling. The, what Jesus is most likely saying is it's easier to get this rope through the eye of a sewing needle than it is for a rich person to get into heaven. Does that even work? Like, that doesn't really even soften the blow, does it? Because you can't get a rope through the eye of a needle. It's still impossible. But we just feel this desire, I think, because of the, the extreme thing that Jesus just said. We develop this desire to soften the blow. Because functionally, when we think about what he's saying, it's impossible for a rich person to be saved. Period. Upon his own work, upon just him, there's nothing he can do. It's impossible for him to inherit eternal life. And the disciples are looking at this. We think that's extreme, but they're, they're really freaked out. Because again, the sentiment that existed in their culture was that, well, the wealthy were a shoe-in. So now they're thinking, oh no, if the wealthy can't get in, what chance do we have? They were a shoe-in, we thought. How are we going to be a part of the kingdom of God? Or to say it like they said, then who can be saved? See what Jesus is teaching here? Let's look, how, let's look to how Jesus responds to them in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, 
It is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. See how the rich young ruler just became an object lesson for them there? Yeah, it's impossible for man to be saved on his own merit. There's really nothing different between you and the rich young ruler. Looking at the poor folk, nobody can accomplish salvation on their own apart from God. They cannot do it. Not even rich people. That's how he's delivering his message. So when it comes to salvation, what Jesus is teaching is that from start to finish, God gets all of the credit. He is the one who saves us. It's solely he who saves us. Or as, as many psalms say, salvation is the Lord's. Salvation is the Lord's. He gets 100% of the credit for our salvation. And that's why all of the glory goes to him. That's how it's set up and why it's set up that way. He doesn't share his glory. And so Jesus just leveled the playing field in terms of salvation. With man, it's impossible. It's impossible for all of you to accomplish your salvation. But with God, it's possible. With God, that camel can fit through the eye of a sewing needle. Let's read in verse 28. Peter's got to say something. He's always got to say something. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. So this is classic Peter. Uh, in, in, the, in the book of Matthew, when we're reading the parallel, he adds, what then will we have? As in, well, why am I trying this hard? That's, that's classic Peter. Peter's just like, man, I've, I've given up everything. Like, I, had a, I have a house in Capernaum. I have a wife there. I have kids there. Like, I have a business there. I was, I, I, I'm leaving it all to follow you. Why am I trying so hard? I'm doing this to be good enough to be a part of your kingdom. What's in it for me? Jesus has an answer. Verse 29 through 31. Jesus says, said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who were our first will be last and the last first Jesus is teaching Peter a valuable lesson well, it's not that your works are meaningless. They don't play a role in your salvation, but let me just tell you, your obedience to God matters. You do those things for the sake of Jesus. You don't do those things to earn your salvation. You do those things to honor Jesus and to honor the gospel that he preached. But we don't do those things to earn the love and acceptance of God. But make no mistake, they matter they matter when, in terms of reward, you know, walking, walking in obedience to, Lord, to the Lord. That's truly what it means. That's biblically what it means to, to have a blessed life. Like to consider yourself blessed. You can be living a life where things are going really well and, and you can have a lot of wealth. And, uh, but if you're obedient to the Lord in that, then you can say I'm blessed. If you're leave, living a life where you live in extreme poverty and everything goes wrong all the time, if you're obedient to the Lord, then you have the right to say I am blessed. Just as much as that man has the, the right to say I am blessed. Because... Being blessed is living with an awareness of God's approval. This is right. This is good. He is right and good. I'm living my life to be godly like him. I'm modeling my life after him. That's, the, that's in essence what it truly means to be blessed. That's how you use that phrase correctly. But Jesus is saying, hey, let me just tell you, you're going to receive a hundredfold 
even right now. Right now and in the age to come. How is that? How is it that you could leave, you know, like, like for some people, especially Jews in that day, when they subscribed to the Christian faith, they were shunned from their family. It cost them a relationship with their mother, their father, their brothers, their sisters. Sometimes it cost them their land because they were persecuted and things. So in what sense are, are, are they getting a hundredfold back? Well, Jesus is saying, you get the church. You get the church, the community of Christ. And so it may cost you your immediate family, and that was certainly true in that day, and it's still true today. It does cost you that much sometimes. But you gain access to the church of Jesus Christ. And we have countless brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, and I certainly have benefited from all of those spiritual family relationships here in this church over the past 10 years, certainly. It's, it's like I get a hundredfold of what I used to have. And certainly in addition to that, this is the path to eternal life, to eternal salvation. And so from a worldly perspective, Someone can look at that and say, man, it looks like, you're, looks like you're in last. But from a spiritual perspective, from a Jesus perspective, you're actually first. Many who are first will be last and last first. So today, again, today is all about what God has done. In the same way, we don't take any credit for anything good that's ever happened at the journey. We only credit God for that. When it comes to our salvation, we give God 100% of the credit. 100% of the credit for our salvation because of him we camels can fit through the eye of the needle not by anything we've done but by his grace and his mercy that's why we take communion every Sunday that's why we're about to take communion right now to remember it's not about us it's about him we take that piece of bread and when we hold it in our hands and, and we sing about the gospel and things we think about one day when we stand before God, we are not turning in our resume, we're turning in Jesus' resume, his righteousness, because through faith, his righteousness is imputed to us, just like that catechism said earlier. His righteousness is what counts for us when I stand before God. We take that juice to remember the blood shed on the cross, atone for all of my sins. I don't have to do good things to make up for the bad things. I do good things out of obedience to God, but that's not to atone for sin. Christ atoned for all sin on the cross. I put faith in that. So put your faith and your trust in that today, even if today is the first time you've ever done that. Take communion with us and bask in that spiritual nutrients that comes with that. If that's not where your hope and your trust is today, let that plate pass. We don't want to make anyone take communion, and it wouldn't make any sense for you to take communion if you did not believe in the Christian faith, and we're not here to look down our noses at you, we can't. We have no leg to stand on. We're boasting in Christ alone. So let's pray. We'll stand together and sing about the gospel and take communion today. Mm -hmm.